And welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Bonita Money, creator of That Glass Jar, founder of the National Diversity and Inclusion Cannabis Alliance, Indica, and at the helm of Women Above Ground. Welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis, Bonita. Thank you, Kara. Appreciate you. Benita stands as the only woman to acquire funding from the governor's office in California and Illinois, providing cannabis education, workforce development, and incubating folks from marginalized communities affected by the war on drugs. Today, Indica supports social equity applicants in training, mentorship, and technical assistance on cannabis licensing, and is the sole organization in its field to be aided by the government entity. Benita authored policy on social equity legislation and has consulted dozens of states, cities, and lawmakers on their social equity programs to create a fair, diverse, and inclusive industry. Her research into the medicinal effects of cannabis led to the creation of That Glass Jar, a topical cannabis-infused cream. To embrace diversity in all its glory, her brainchild, Women Above Ground, brings women of color together introducing them to the cannabis business with the mission of generating generational wealth for the families. Going with the tag of hashtag let's bud together, she aims to remove the stigma and unrealistic associations between legality and criminality of the green rush. Money was highlighted in Variety Magazine and included in LA Weekly's People List 2017. Thanks to her continued efforts, Indica was responsible for 20% of all expungements in Los Angeles County in 2018. CNN has covered her work in a 2019 docudrama, and Forbes went on to feature her as the first social equity hemp farmer. She has formed a partnership with the California Employment Development Department to place returning citizens in cannabis and mainstream employment by hosting monthly job fairs at state EDD offices throughout the region. Gosh, wow, Bonita. I am so excited to finally get you on the show. You are such a powerhouse woman in cannabis. Well, thank you. I literally feel like I need two hours for this interview with you. <laughs> but welcome. Welcome, welcome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me. So we met in 2017. And the very first time I actually met you in person was at your MJ Biz party, which actually was so fun. I still remember it to this day. And that was a crazy busy experience, but your party definitely stood out. But in all the time I've known you, I've I've actually never had a chance to hear your story. How did you come to cannabis and what made you choose to just throw your entire self into the plant and the people of cannabis? Well, I come from TV and film, so I've been a producer for over 20 years. And when I was watching what was going on in the cannabis industry back in 2015, I knew that I had to get in. I just didn't understand how I was going to go in. Um, Didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to be a part of it. Um, And just in, you know, networking and going to events and conferences, 
what I realized is that uh, there were just no folks of color. It was, you know, you'd see a few here and there, but for the most part, you know, they were just either being excluded or just, you know, really didn't have the resources to be able to even afford those events and didn't have the education on how to get in or what uh, was available to them. So this is why I created the platforms that I did as far as Women Above Ground, which I started in 2015. And then I started um, Indica, which is National Diversity and Inclusion Cannabis Alliance in 2018. So I just wanted to make sure that we had an inclusive industry, you know, for people of color, especially folks that have been targeted by the war on drugs and their communities have been decimated because of the war on drugs. I think, you know, it was just real important because you have so many folks that went to prison over this plant Mm -hmm. and it just didn't make sense because now, you know, folks are making billions legally. Mm -hmm. While there are still people sitting in jail. Correct. Makes no sense. I'm really curious what your vision is for the BIPOC community in cannabis. So you're dedicating your life to make really big changes. And I'm curious about kind of your vision for the end result. And I, and I ask this kind of from a personal perspective because I'm, I myself am really involved in the day-to-day struggle for women. And I can't even believe kind of some of the things we're fighting for will ever be able to even experience. So it makes it kind of hard for me when I think about, okay, well, all these things we're fighting for, you know, what's it going to look like when women get 40% funding and, and women are holding 50% of the C-suite positions and, you know, these things that we are really working so hard to make happen, but I don't even know what that looks like. I don't know how that will impact the world. Do you have a vision for what it will be when the BIPOC community has their fair share in the industry? Absolutely. It'll, it'll change communities. It'll change lives. And that's the whole point is that we want to make sure that not only are we giving licenses to a handful of people, we want to make sure that we are impacting communities that have suffered because of the war on drugs. They've been negatively impacted and they still haven't, you know, they still haven't been able to really build their communities back up. And so you know, what I want to see is generational wealth for these folks of color. And I want to make sure that we have community reinvestment. So in a lot of states, like for instance, California, Illinois, Virginia is moving towards that. Um, Also New York, they all have community reinvestment funds that come from um, the cannabis tax dollars. And so like 30% um, from Virginia, uh, 40% of the tax money from New York will go into this community reinvestment. So it'll go to organizations that work in the communities, you know, and um, this is so important because again, I think these type of things are being overlooked and, you know, we start with changing policy and that's, what's important at this point is to make sure that across the nation, we do have social equity programs and that they're well-funded because that's been a big problem is that there's been no funding around these programs, so we don't have a, a successful social equity program yet. Interesting. I'm curious when you talk about generational wealth, do you see the cannabis industry is actually able to provide that for anybody? 
you know, do you see that as passing on, you know, building a, a business and being able to pass that on through your family? And do you see that with the burden that we have of taxes, that it's actually going to be possible for someone to create that kind of wealth in this industry for themselves and their family? Well, yeah, those are um, those are good questions because, you know, especially with the tax issue, I mean, that's really going to have to, you know, be worked out. They're going to have to come down on taxes. I mean, California, we're getting taxed like 45%, which makes no sense. It's just ridiculous. You know, no other industries tax like that. So why are we taxed that way? <laughs> you know, I mean, really, I mean, they, I mean, they just think that, you know, cannabis people have money just flowing out their ass, which is not true. And, you know, the struggle's real. So can we possibly create generational wealth? Yeah, absolutely. If it's done right. You know, and I just think that, you know, this is where the education and the mentorship comes in with a lot of these folks, because when you're talking about a a typical social equity applicant, the qualifications to be a social equity applicant is that you're low income, that you have a cannabis conviction, and that you come from a marginalized area that was affected by the war on drugs. So with those type of requirements, most of those folks don't have the education or have they run a legal business. A lot of them do come from the legacy market, but when it comes to things like compliance and being able to keep up with those things, um, it's very difficult. It's also quite difficult to get funding in a way that is not kind of setting the recipient of the license up to be preyed upon. No, absolutely. That's the number one barrier is access to capital. You know, and, and, that, and this is what I never understood is that why are you rolling out these social equity programs when you don't have any funding options. That's just so crazy because you're setting folks up to be preyed upon by these predatory investors and they will be, you know, they will be taken over, um, you know, and they'll lose their businesses because this is what a lot of these investors have in their mind is just to buy these folks out in a few years. Doesn't it then just become a cheaper way to get a license is on the back of a recipient? Absolutely, absolutely. And this is where, you know, we've been... We've had to like change policy and and try to get rid of those loopholes that these predatory investors are are you know basically sliding through, and you know it's 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 really really just disappointing to see that folks really aren't supporting social equity, you know and you know it just it it's amazing how greedy people are, you know they just don't want other folks in the industry and you know it just doesn't make sense and you know and not everybody's going to be able to benefit. You know, I'm not, I mean, everybody's not going to get a license. That's, that is just the fact. Um, it doesn't matter what color you are, but this is why the community reinvestment piece is so important because we, we need to make sure that we are putting funds into our communities and building these communities up. And how do you go about convincing? Is it a is a local jurisdiction? Is it a state jurisdiction? Who really runs the social equity programs? Well, in California, we have city and state social equity programs. Um, In other states, it's just a state program. You know, California is unique in the sense that, you know, our cities basically trump the state as far as ordinances and regulations, where in other states, it's the state regulations that basically um, everyone follows. So most states, they have state social equity programs. But I do encourage, you know, cities and municipalities to have their own social equity programs. And what would they look like? What would that funding look like? And how would the distribution look in a system that felt fair and equitable to you? Well, I mean, there's there's several ways that you could set it up. 
um, where the money would come from as far as with city and state. Um, there could be a lot of ways. I mean, I would say some of the tax, the tax revenue, cannabis tax revenue should go towards a fund, like a grant fund or a loan, some type of low interest uh, loan fund. Um, but it's been really hard to move the needle on that. Um, you know, but I think it would be a little more of like an RFP grant process to award these folks with uh, funding. Um, but for us, this is what I've been working on the last couple of years is finding that capital. And so right now we have three funding arms and we've partnered with some very big um, investment uh, arms. And so now, and we're going to roll this out in the next couple of weeks, but it's taken us like the past eight months just to negotiate this whole situation. But we will have access to capital for folks and we'll be able to give low interest loans and you know, and be able to mentor these folks um, through the process as well, because we, you know, we is this through Indica? Yeah, it is through Indica. We partnered. Yeah, and we're going to make an announcement in a couple of weeks, but yeah, we made um, several partnerships. That's incredible, Bonita. Yeah, it is. It's it's it is. It's a big move in the sense that we've never had that, and it's something that we've we've needed. So I that, that's one of the things I had to focus on the last couple of years is just finding those funding arms that were going to make sense for folks. So how many people do you think you'll be able to help in your first few years? Uh, it could be unlimited. Really? Yes, it could be unlimited. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we're tied to some very big SPACs as well as, um, as well as a, and you'll know these people once we announce it, you'll know who exactly who they are. And as well as one of the biggest uh, investment uh, firms around. Congratulations. That's amazing. I know you've been working so hard at this for a long time. That's just incredible that you've actually gotten it to this point. Congratulations. Thank you. You're going to do a lot of people a lot of good. Um, I was talking with Christine De La Rosa, the CEO of People's Dispensary, and she was suggesting one of her solutions is amnesty for social equity applicants that they don't have to pay license fees. And it's not you know, the, it's not enough to really get your business started, but when it's $250,000 to apply and get your license and in California, our license fees, some people have had them double recently. That's got to be a huge burden to take off. So I'm just curious what you thought of that idea in, in all of this scope of social equity. No, absolutely. They should either have reduced fees or a deferment program, which LA has one, but it hasn't really been implemented. And this is the problem is that you know, they have these these type of programs, but I'm not seeing them being rolled out. You know, so in L.A., we were supposed to have um, a whole like a technical assistance program, um, business development, education, um, a fee deferment for application fees and licensing fees. And they've just been slow to roll everything out, which has been problematic in the sense that a lot of people were holding on to buildings. And, you know, one of my friends, yeah, one of my friends, she's already spent a million dollars and just, in just, you know, licensing fees, um, real estate, all that, and still does it and still not operating. Oh, God. You know, so it's things like this that when we're, we're talking about social equity, it's like, how does that make any sense? It just doesn't. And when you, and when you expect someone that's supposed to be low income and make less than forty five thousand a year in L.A., um, and your licensing fees are thirty five, forty thousand, that's just impossible. 
It's, it's absolutely impossible. And then you're stuck with an industry of people who are totally removed from the plant and the experience. Yes, exactly. So let's talk about women above ground. What was the inspiration? What is your mission? And what support do you need from the community at large? Well, I think women above ground is, is pretty in line with Indica as well. It was again, just to give women of color an opportunity to enter into the industry. You know, I came from corporate and a lot of my friends came from corporate into cannabis and, you know, it was difficult for us to transition because it's a new industry for us. And, and because it's so new, there's really not a set path on how you enter into it. So I just think that a lot of folks need a lot of support. They need a lot of mentorship, you know, in being able to, you know, enter into the industry, you know, and transition. Do you see that there are some unique challenges or barriers for women of color coming into the industry? Yeah, I think for people of color overall, there's barriers. You know, I I think as in any industry, people of color have, you know, there's discrimination, there's racism, um, there's there's those real barriers. And, you know, the opportunities aren't so, um, they aren't so abundant for people of color. And this is what we need to, you know, we need to really be mindful of and, and really create these. It's like, you know, the whole workforce development program that I have, you know, it's really geared towards assisting people of color from marginalized communities and a lot of returning citizens to be able to work in the industry. Because again, not everyone's going to hold a license and be able to own a cannabis business, but they can, you know, they can be in the industry in some way. And right now, I mean, this is where a lot of the jobs are. They're in, you know, they're with these cannabis companies and a lot of people are unemployed especially in these mar- in marginalized communities. So it only makes sense for us to, you know, train them and get them to work. What kind of jobs are you training them in? Is it specific plant touching or is it all ancillary as well? It's everything. It's everything. And, okay. and, and this is the challenge that I've had like here in California and I'm sure it's, it's even worse in other States, but like for returning citizens that have just been released in the last 12 months, they're probably on paper. So they're probably, either on parole or, or probation. And the problem is, is that the state and the counties won't allow these parolees or probationers to work in the cannabis industry as far as plant touching. So that's been really problematic, you know, because a lot of those jobs are going to be plant touching. But I mean, you, we, you know, you do have other jobs like, you know, marketing, sales, things like that, um, HR, but a lot of those jobs they have to be skilled for. And so it's it's going to be a matter of, you know, intense training for jobs like that, or even see, you know, just C-suite positions are going, you know, that's a whole nother level. But a lot of these guys just need entry level positions. And most of those are in plant touching and we can't get them employed. So that's another thing I'm trying to work on is getting the state and the county to allow these folks to be able to work in the industry. Does that also include um, entrepreneurship? I mean, in Women Empowered in Cannabis, I would say most of the women of color are business owners. Right. So if, if someone's on parole or probation, if they want to be a business owner in cannabis, it can't be plant touching though. So it would have to be something ancillary. Wow. Well, if, if there's anyone listening that wants to get involved, that wants to find a way to help you or, and be a resource for employment, 
Do they just go to Women Above Ground? Can they reach you that way and participate and help you out in that way? Well, they can go to Indica because that's where we do our workforce development, our training, our internships, mentorships. Yeah. So they could just go to the NDICA.org and definitely um, they can do an, you know, a inquiry and just reach out to us because we definitely need folks that are looking to hire um, returning citizens and we definitely look looking for mentors. We're looking for, you know, um, just community partners that could help us in, you know, in this movement. I get the question a lot for people who are new to cannabis. How do I, you know, I run a marketing agency. I, you know, I, I run a security agency and we want to break into cannabis. What's cannabis? What's the best way to break in and, and start to build a network? And I tell people volunteer. And I think that Indica is an incredible place to actually be able to give your time and energy and skills and expertise to help other people and be of service to this industry. Because that's, I mean, to me, that's really the best way to break in is find a way to be of service. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you know, as well as I do, we started in the industry when it was very young, as far as legal industry anyway. And, you know, again, there was really no clear pathway to get to, you know, <laughs> to where we want to go. So it, you're absolutely right. It's about, you know, being in service and, and, you know, getting a really good mentor to learn from, you know, and, and just start networking and meeting the right people because that, those are the ones that are going to lead you, you know, to um, where you need to be. Because again, like what, if someone's coming from a marketing background or, or HR background or whatever that is, it's really just taking those skills and moving them into cannabis because now everything that, is needed in a mainstream business is now needed in the legal cannabis business. So it's just really a matter of just understanding, you know, the, the cannabis industry and then just using those skills towards that. And then knowing the right people, it still is an industry where you do need to know some of the right people. Oh, you absolutely do. You have to, you have to know the right people. And that's where the networking comes in, mm-hmm. you know, and that, and that's what we've been lacking this past year with COVID is, you know, we didn't have any of those networking events that we used to all go to and we used to all throw, you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, it's very mm-hmm. difficult. So, I mean, it was more of a, okay, let's try to meet people online, but you know, that's just not the same. It hasn't been. And and now the CDC has said masks off if you're vaccinated. So I think we're probably going to be seeing things return to normal faster than most of us expected. Oh, that's great, though. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking forward to that because, you know, just that uh, that interaction is so important. You know, we need to get back to that. Get back yes, to our, we do. Our networking and our, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. Hugs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good and yeah, I, I miss that a lot too. I'm looking forward to MJ Biz this year. So, in addition to everything you're doing on the regulated regulated side of cannabis, you're also a hemp farmer. How, how? Why hemp? Have you always had an affinity for agriculture? Is this a new venture for you? Mm, no. Tell me more. No, this is something that that was about two two and a half years ago. Um, I had so I was mentoring um, some black farmers in uh, Wisconsin, and they had some land and. It had been in their family for probably 60 years and they were leasing out the land to um, some other farmers. And, you know, I just said, wow, why don't we grow hemp? Because hemp just went legal in Wisconsin a couple years ago. So that's how, you know, we started uh, the hemp farm. Um, but I really wanted to make sure that we were able to basically mentor some other black farmers or just folks that, you know, people of color that wanted to get into the industry. 
So that was a great way to, you know, really give back and really help the community out there. That's awesome because they still don't have any kind of uh, cannabis program yet outside of the hemp world, do they? No, not at all. Not yet. And they're surrounded around states that do, but you know, I mean, that's Indiana, yeah. Wisconsin really need to legalize. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You've been in cannabis for a long time. What have you seen change for the better? And what have you seen change for the worse for women and people of color specifically in this industry? Oh, well, I, what, what I think is, uh, awesome is the, uh, the fact that more states are adopting social equity programs. They really are looking at the social justice, justice aspect of this and really figuring out like how they can like really, uh, impact communities. You know, I mean, when Virginia came online, it was just that, that was surprising because they've mm. always been pretty conservative. So for them to be, you know, really about community reinvestment and equity, you know, I mean, that was just, that was awesome. So just seeing that, you know, move state to state, that has been, that has, I think, been a monumental because, you know, it's been a long fight. It's been like three and a half, four years of fighting for equity. And so we're seeing some really positive changes. Again, we just need to make sure that these programs are moving with integrity because, you know, um, we don't have a real solid program that's worked yet just because of, you know, the pushback from, you know, these uh, predatory investors and folks that have already been in these, the industry and, and want to monopolize it. So mm-hmm. those are the issues we have, but at least we have these programs, you know what I mean? So we can mm-hmm. at least build on that and, and try to tweak them so that, you know, uh, we keep, you know, we keep these uh, safeguards up. and. Um, and then I, I don't know, as far as, oh, let's see, the negatives. Um, I don't know. You know, I just think, and maybe these have always been around, but I just think that, you know, there's some bad players in the industry that, you know, um, are continue, the, continuing to navigate through the industry and victimize folks. And I just think that they need to be exposed. And, and um, because we're such a new industry, a lot of folks don't speak up about things that are going on. Or how they're victimized because, you know, it's really odd to me because I'm always, I've always been one to, to always speak up and, you know, and make sure I call folks out. And a lot of people don't like that, but I just think that more people need to do that, especially when they become victims of these, these people. Because there's so many people that have, they navigate around and take advantage of folks and nobody says anything because they think they're going to be blackballed. And that's just crazy to me. What do you think is the best way to come out and say it? Is it on social media? Is it, I mean, what is the, what is the best venue to really do that, to make sure that, you know, your case is presented clearly and that, because it's always such a sticky situation, especially on social media. And you're right. There is the fear of being blackballed. Oh yeah. How do you do that? Well, you know, I don't think there's any best way to do that. I just think, because a lot of people don't have access to the best way. Cause I mean, for me, it's mainstream media. And I'm fortunate to have, you know, have access to that. Um, but a lot of folks don't. And I think because and, and I think because of that, that's where they feel powerless and they feel afraid that they can be blackballed. But my thing is this, it's, you know, if you don't speak up, then these, you know, you're going to have these people continue to victimize other people because nobody knows. And there's a lot of predatory people out here that are taking advantage of this industry because it's so new 
you know, it's just, and that to me is just horrible. And we need a better business bureau in cannabis. Yeah, we really do. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> I totally agree. I was just talking about that the other day because we need, we need some way to be able to like check, you know, check companies out, check people out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even some type of public forum where people can go on and, and report things and, you know, it's just, yeah, it's very needed. I mean, it's been needed for years. What are you most excited about in 2021? I know we're almost halfway through the year, but now that it's going to open up, our lives are really going to change. And what are you most looking forward to? I'm looking forward to more folks getting licensed. Um, I'm looking forward to more states um, implementing these social equity programs. Um, I'm looking for folks to start operating. Because a lot of folks have been, you know, they've been issued licenses, especially in L.A., and they have not been able to operate because we've had lawsuits, we've had audits, things like that. And so they just... COVID. Yeah, COVID. Yeah, that's another big piece. Um, yeah, and so they've just been sitting on these licenses for a year and a half, almost two years, and they're just not operating, you know? So we've had hundreds of licenses been issued to social equity applicants, and now they're license holders. and they are not operating. Hundreds in the LA area. Yep. Hundreds. So that means there are hundreds of businesses that could be opening at the same time around in LA, which would completely change the landscape of the whole industry there. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, amazing. Yeah. We'll have more social equity retail licenses than the pre ICOs. And, if, and, and folks don't know what pre-ICOs are. Basically, those were the dispensaries that were opened um, before 2007, before our new ordinances changed. That's really exciting, Benita. I, I, I hope that that goes through. That will really be, it'll be incredible for LA as a whole as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it'll give hope to, you know, other cities and states that are trying to implement these programs. You know, I'm just hoping that you know, one city gets it right or one state gets it right. And we have a a successful model that, you know, everybody else can follow. Who is doing, who is new, fairly new, that's been doing a pretty good job with social equity? No one. (laughs) Sorry to say that, but I get, listen, I get asked that question all the time and uh, yeah, no, no one. I guess it must be my perception is because I've seen so many women of color surface in the community that are business owners in Oklahoma now that that must be why, because there's no cap. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oklahoma is great. Oklahoma is great. Their, their model is one that everyone should use because there should be no cap on licensing. It's like, let, allow the free market to decide who stays in business. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, not everybody's going to be able to be successful and then they'll just go out of business. But it's like, don't put up the barriers so people can't even enter into the industry. Well, it's just become such a moneymaker for local jurisdictions. Well, and it would be even a more, a bigger moneymaker if they would open it up and not put a cap on it. <laughs> yep. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, it's, it's all revenue. So it's like, you know, why are you putting caps on this? It's just, it's just ridiculous. And, you know, again, you're putting barriers up to entry. Yeah. For women too, you know, I mean, yeah, of course I put, I put um, a license in application in, in Santa Monica and they were pretty lenient. I didn't have to have real estate and I didn't have to have funding secured, but it still cost a lot of money to get the application done and the process and the time. And then, you know, all of that, you turn it in and it's, 
eh, we're going to give it to, we said we were going to give it to people who were from the community, but we've decided we're going to give it to the people who gave us a ton of money. Exactly. Who own countries in Arizona. Exactly. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. That, and see, this is where all the MSOs come, come in. And, and right now I'm working with San Diego and, you know, they're about to develop a social equity program and that city's being lobbied by all these MSOs because they want the city to change their ordinances to benefit them. And the city, yeah, it's crazy. It's like, okay, how much more do you need? But, you know, and the city's not willing to do that, which is great. The city is not willing to do anything for MSOs. They're only going to change the ordinances to benefit social equity, which is great. And as it should be. But yeah, these MSOs, again, are throwing away, they're throwing around a lot of money and they're lobbying, you know, all these cities and states, you know, and it's so corrupt that it works. It, and it's, it works because it really only comes down to a few people in that government office deciding the direction of this, correct? Right. And, you know, exactly. And there needs to be oversight. You know what I mean? There needs to be some type of oversight committee that is looking at all this, they, that is looking at the application process, they're looking at who's grading the licenses, they're looking at where the tax money's going, you know, all that. It's just built for corruption when it doesn't have the oversight. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, this industry is definitely built for corruption, and that's what's happening. And this is why women, people of color, you know, are being shut out. Because like you said, you know, these application fees, you know, are just ridiculous. Licensing fees are ridiculous. But just even getting past that application process, and then you're paying all this money, and it's non-refundable. Yeah, that's the other part of it, is that you put all that time and money in, like you were talking about your friend who's a million in the hole now, mm-hmm. because I know in LA, you've got to have that real estate. Right. Exactly. It's sitting empty. That is a completely unfair burden. What other industry does that to somebody? No one. I mean, exactly. What? Yeah. What other industry do you need a building to get a license? That you have to hold on to the whole time. Right. And not only that, but but you have to apply for a license and pay all these like ridiculous application fees, and there's no guarantee that you'll even get it. That's a lot to ask. I mean, you know, that's a huge, a huge ask to ask from folks that don't really have that type of capital. Mm-hmm. And then it is hard to get because it is cannabis. It's just, it's a never ending kind of loop where there's just no opportunity for anyone outside the white man who's got the money. Right. And then they build these companies in our industry that just, you know, look, there are some great companies. It is not you know, white men are not a monolith either. Right. But, you know, it's, you don't see that the companies at the top that just crash and burn and embarrass the industry as a whole are not led by women and people of color. Exactly. Absolutely. And the thing about it is, is I'm not saying, okay, let's get, you know, these white men out of the industry. My thing is that let's just make it a fair and inclusive industry. Yeah. You know, let's just give opportunity to everybody. Yes. That's all. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, yeah, nobody's trying to ban anybody or exclude anybody. It's just that, again, we don't want other people excluded either. No. And and when there is so much evidence that women and people of color have a higher rate of return on investment, lower turnover of employees, they meet their goals faster. Over and over, study after study and industry after industry shows that when you elevate women and people of color, businesses do better. Communities do better. Everyone does better. 
Right. And our, it will only affect our industry in that way as well. It will only make us better and stronger and employing more people. And that will give us more power in the country as a whole, in every industry, when we can say, look, cannabis industry, it, look at how many people it employs. Look at how many people it allows to live the American dream because they can start their own businesses and they aren't held back because they're women or people of color. Exactly. We do have an opportunity in this industry and I, I hope for that. And so I really support everything that you're doing. And I really hope that anyone listening that has the inclination to reach out to Benita, to reach out to her organizations and support them. She's doing great stuff. She is going to make a difference in this industry and we should stand behind her and help her with what she's doing. Thank you. Um, yeah. And if anybody, you know, again, if anybody needs assistance in, you know, entering into the industry, definitely reach out to us because that's what we're here for. So we're in five different states as well. And, um, you know, so, you know, we just, we want to be able to assist and, you know, there's a, again, there's a lot of barriers and, you know, people just don't understand how to enter into the industry. They don't have the resources to, um, really get through the process. So if they need any, you know, any type of assistance, we're here so they can reach out to us. Recommend your friends. If you know people who are looking for that help, who want to get into the industry, this is an open door for them. Okay, Benita, before we end, I've got another question for you. I want to hear one thing that you're most excited about and one thing you're most concerned about federal legalization. Um, I'm excited that um, we can open the doors um, to a lot more folks once we go federal. And not like that, but I think businesses will be able to thrive um, on a positive note. Um, but my, I think my biggest fear is that we're going to be taken over by big business, mm. you know, by the big boys. And I, and, and if folks don't have a real footprint in the industry at that point, they're not going to be able to exist. Oh, that is my big fear too. Yeah. And it's, and it's real though. I mean, that's very real. I mean, that's a reality. We know that's going to happen. We know that the big boys are going to step in. And so, you know, how do we make it, you know, fair for again, women and people of color or just people period that don't have the capital capital to go against these folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is really, it's, it's hurting in uh, our Emerald Triangle legacy market now too. Oh, of course. Yeah. That's been happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's a big concern. So yeah, I mean, as much as, you know, I can appreciate us being federally legal, with, you know, with banking and all that, because that's going to help with our banking and a lot of those type of issues. Are we able, are we going to, are we even going to be able to survive with the big boys in the industry? My hope is that our workaround is, okay, you can have banking. Okay. The East coast is forcing interstate commerce now. And the work that groups like yours and last prisoner project and others that I, I feel that that's that third piece that we need to heal before we are federally legal in order for us as an industry to move on. If we have those three things and without federal legalization, I think we will really thrive and I, it will keep the big, the wolves at bay and it will give us the things that we need to grow. So that's my hope anyway. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, that, that would be a game changer to have the banking issue solved. Absolutely. And you say commerce, definitely. So let's hope that, you know, that happens like very soon within this next year. 
there have been some miracles happening this year, and I hope they continue. You know, Chuck Schumer has said that cannabis and, and record expungement is top priority for him. So we'll see. Knock on wood. All right, Benita, before we close, please tell us where women can reach out to you if they want to know about Women Above Ground or um, Indica. Oh, great. Yes, they can go to Women Above Ground, and above is spelled A-B-U-V. So it's women, A-B-U-V, ground.com. And then Indica was the Indica, which is T-H-E-N-D-I-C-A dot org. And then we're on Instagram at the Indica 18 um, we're on Facebook as far as National Diversity and Inclusion Cannabis Alliance and same with LinkedIn and Twitter. And where can they find Bonita Money? <laughs> they can find me on all my websites. And then, oh, then they can just find me at IG, which is Money 27 and then Bonita Money on Facebook. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Benita. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing your journey with us today. And thank you for everything that you do for women and people of color in the industry. We are very lucky to have you. You're a force to be reckoned with. Thank you, Cara. And you know what? Thank you for inviting me. Such a pleasure. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our brand new membership portal at womenempoweredincannabis.com. There you'll find lots of information on our new memberships for women working in cannabis. You can also find us on Clubhouse as WEIC, where we host AMA rooms with investors and recruiters and monthly open mics so that you can introduce yourself to the community. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking the leap into the industry. Consider becoming a member or supporting business member for benefits and access across the network. And join us next week for another conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canada podcasters right here on PodConnex and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.